Hey everyone, this is Gary Kay, and I have a very special guest today. We're going to do a long conversation with a really good friend of mine and a friend of all of yours in the industry, Lynn Dozier. Uh, Lynn, uh, you know Lynn for Premier Mounts, but you may have known him for other things as well. I remember this company called Progressive, and I remember some other stuff in there as well. But we're going to kind of do a, a historical look at the industry because uh, he's got He's been in the industry a long time. He's about and he's retired, uh, as you know. Uh, Premier just um, sold to uh, Gamber Johnson. We'll talk about that as well. But first off, Lynn, uh, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Um, I want to go back to the well. First off, congratulations on um, having a uh, a plan to to retire from this industry. A lot of people don't get an opportunity to have a plan and make a plan, and you built a company into something that was uh, a sellable entity. And uh, you've, you've sold it to a great company in Gamber Johnson, and they're going to be great stewards of the premier brand, I'm quite sure, in the, in the product line. So congratulations on that. Yeah. I'm sure that must be a big relief. Uh, it was my time. It's, it's been a great ride for me. Uh, I actually started in 1966. So that's 54 years. So uh, it's been a good run. So in 1966, what was AV in 1966? Like, what were you doing in 1966? Well, in the earlier part of 66, I was a maintenance electrician for a plastics manufacturer in, uh, here in Southern California. And they were going on strike. And a buddy of mine who I met during my service days up in Montana had gone to work for a radio station in Garden Grove, California called KTBT Radio. Mm -hmm. And they also had the first Sony franchise for videotape equipment in those days. And that was called Teleaudio Center. And that's where I got my start. I went to work there. They paid and, me. Go ahead. Go ahead. What did they pay you? I think it was 100 a week and 5% of whatever I sold. And, and did you enjoy it? How long were you there? I was there for almost three years. Uh, I got hooked on it because, uh, you know, Sony in those days was just newly, you know, they've been out for maybe a year, their black and white half inch uh, real tape, videotape recorder systems. And it was basically, you would sell a camera a recorder and, and a monitor. And I went out on my first or second demo and made a sale. And it wasn't to a school or anything, it was actually to a, a metal forging company in Buena Park and the guy, all he did was videotape the secretary walking up and down the aisle and gave me a check. I think it was $1,700 and I was, I was hooked. <laughs> $1,700. That's amazing. Uh, that, that, that's a big sale for your first sale. Well, that was, that's what it was. And, uh, and it was really a numbers game. It's, it's almost like selling cars if you really want to look at it because videotape was in, in its infancy in the pro AB side. As you know, everything was film and slides. So there was a big curiosity factor. And it was the more demos you made, the more the odds were you were gonna sell equipment. And most of the sales in those early days was basic camera recorder monitor. And did you sell any to any of the studios? Was that part of the market at that time or were they getting into video yet? 
No, well, the studios were already in it, but you couldn't sell into the broadcast market unless you had broadcast products. And in those days, Sony didn't. Okay. Ampex did, RCA did, uh, and they did not franchise us as those kind of dealers. So that came about some years later. And, and it's kind of funny, I was looking at a trade magazine. Uh, well, here, here's a picture of me back in the day. Odetics, there you go. Yeah. Everyone wore ties on their uh, sales trips back then? Oh, Odetics was very regimented. They were in near spaceborne technology. Okay. So they were in high speed audio tape. And, but they had invented a new recorder called a time-lapse recorder. Mm -hmm. And in those days, the recorders were of two types. There were skip-field recorders and there was full-field. Sony happened to be a skip-field recorder, and which meant it, it just duplicated the same line that it scanned twice. Where Panasonic and the others actually had a higher resolution and they were called full-field recorders. But the thing that made Sony so was its simplicity. No two cables were the same, so you couldn't plug, plug a cable in backwards where the Panasonic's or the JVC's and the common connector was the Amphenol PL259, which was that big coaxial cable adapter. Yeah. And you could easily get the camera mixed up with the monitor output. And so anyway, uh, I, uh, the, my biggest accomplishment is there. And oh, by the way, it's worth noting that the guy that owned Tel Audio Center and KTBT Radio was no, no other than Oliver Berliner. And I don't know if you know too much about Ollie. Mm -mm, I don't, tell me. Okay, Oliver Berliner, uh, his great grandfather was Emil Berliner. And Emil Berliner invented the flat disc record and the microphone. Wow. Wow. So, wow. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what an impact. And that's uh, amazing. So, did you ever meet Emil? Not, not Emil Berliner. No, I hit passed on by that time, but. Uh, okay. Oliver was uh, quite a guy in his own right. Obviously, the family had lots of money. He uh, used to live on Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills. I think Carol Burnett was one of his neighbors. And he would always come down occasionally. And he'd really like to pontificate to you. So he'd say, Leonard, Roxbury Drive is not a place. It's a way of life. <laughs> so, so how long did you stay there? And uh, where did you move on to after that? I stayed there for approximately three years. Okay. The biggest thing I did for Tel Audio Center, and, and obviously I did it for Sony and Panasonic, I sold the first shipboard Navy warship onboard entertainment system that was not of American manufacture. And that was a big deal in those days because the Buy American Act was well in place. Ampex was the solid first choice for the government for the, the old original AFRTS, Armed Forces Radio and Television. Mm -hmm. So you, and the, the way I crafted the sale, I, I met this uh, young junior uh, commander on the USS Princeton. And he just walked through the door one day and told me what he wanted to do. He wanted a shipboard entertainment system. They wanted their own mini production studio, which would have been black and white in those days. Mm -hmm. And we worked the whole thing up and uh, had the sale ready to be done. And we had like 300 GE televisions that we were installing throughout the ships. And in those days, 
I not only made the sale, but a lot of times I had to go out and do the installation as well because there just wasn't installers around in those days. So yeah, that was good potty training time for me. So you did the installation on, on the ship yourself? And along with the crew, yeah. Wow, and so, I mean, back, is it coax back then or what were they using back then was, to drive this? It was coax. Okay, yeah. yeah. So all you had to do is figure out a way to fish coax all over the whole ship. Um, yeah. Two armored cable on top of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so then this is 69 then and you moved on to where after? Moved on to Odetics. Okay, Odetics. And how long were you there at Odetics and what did you do? Uh, I was at Odetics from 69 to 76 when I retired as uh, their president of Video Odetics. And during that time, uh, as I said, Odetics was just starting to build the first time-lapse recorder player. And they chose the Sony uh, half-inch unit because skip-fill technology worked better for them than full-fill technology just because of the way they were compressing time. Mm -hmm. And uh, went on to do a lot of really neat sales for them over the years. Started as just sales guy, which has always been my forte is selling. And uh, we, probably the biggest sale I did for the industry over the years, there was a lot, but by far the biggest was when I sold the Datsun video system to what was then Datsun nowadays Nissan. Yeah. And what happened there was that uh, it all started out with me doing a typical demonstration again for the service department. And uniquely enough, I wasn't even using Sony equipment. I think I had Hitachi equipment on that demo. And the service department saw the benefits in being able to have instant replay or replay over and over again. So that's what got them started. And then the conversation moved on to wanting to do more for training inside the dealerships. And one thing led to another. And it was kind of ironic because the president of uh, Video Dedics was a guy by the name of Sheldon Pines. Do you remember him? I do remember Sheldon. Yeah, I know the name. And I don't know that I ever met him, but I definitely know who he is. Yeah. Then you also knew Reynolds Johnson? Yeah, I know the name as well. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So Sheldon and I, he was my boss, but we were, mm -hmm. we were friendly competitors, let's say. And we'd come up with a concept that the three quarter inch video cassette was now mainstream in the market. Yeah. Sony prior to that had sold their first big sale was to Ford Motor Company uh, for their dealerships throughout America. And they basically sold them a three quarter inch player, VP1000 it was in those days, and a monitor, probably the monitor would have been a Trinitron because that was their first major success story in, in color television technology. And, but we took it one step further. Uh, I said, what if I could allow you to segment and search out on the tape anywhere you wanted and be within 30, 30 seconds or less close? And that got their attention right away. Now I'm pitching this to Dotson. Mm -hmm. Sheldon, on the other hand, is trying to pitch it to Toyota. So we were going neck and neck. And then at the 11th hour, for whatever reason, and, and you could put 10 Datsuns inside one Toyota <laughs> at that time. That's how big yeah. the difference was. But Datsun still had about 3,000 dealerships. Make a long story short, we built a custom cabinet for the unit. It stood as tall as a human being stood. It had a three-quarter inch player in it, 19-inch color, Trinitron monitor, had a 
storage shelf below with a big speaker below that. And you could pull out a video cassette, put it in the machine. But the unique thing we did, and this was with Sony's blessing, but don't tell anybody in those days. <laughs> we actually modified their mechanical latching, VP1000, and we put in electric solenoids. And then we put in a device that just counted revolutions. So we knew we could get fairly close. And that's what Dotson bought. Uh, total value of the wholesale was about three and a half million dollars. But so were you still was, on a five percent commission back then? No, I was already the president of the company by then. <laughs> so um, I, I go back in time and say all those things. I, I made a lot of people a lot of money, and I but I got a heck of an education out of it. And when my opportunity finally came, I was well versed to continue doing what I was doing. But that was a biggie in the. We, the logistics were, we, we used beacon van lines, I remember that. And they would roll these things into the dealerships all across the United States. And their instruction was roll it in, take the cover off the top, the, the box off the top, plug it in the wall, put the first demonstration cassette in and push play. <laughs> and, and we went all over the country with Nissan signing up dealers because it was all on a leaseback uh, program. And it was a, a very big deal for me at the time. Well, and so what happened to Sheldon? Did he get did he get the Toyota deal? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sheldon, so Sheldon, well, Sheldon and Reynolds later went on to become Avid Corporation. Yeah, yeah. And Reynolds Johnson they did very well for themselves. Avid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, they well, first of all, they were brilliant businessmen in my estimation. And Reynolds Johnson was uh, my first uh, regional sales manager for Sony on the West Coast. And I first met Sheldon when I went to see George Allen of the Rams. And this, was not, this was another unique application. One of the things I tell people, I, I am so blessed to have been in this business as long as I have, because I, as you, as just like you, I've been able to travel the world. I've seen and done things I know I could have never done in any other industry. Yeah. Starting with that simple little recorder, camera, and a monitor. So we, uh, uh, I lost my train of thought. Well, we were, we were, we were at 1976 now, um, and you, re you retired from Odell. Oh. And where did you go? I, uh, I actually resigned. Okay. After, after the Dotson sale, I, I just not, I had not, I'd set a goal for myself. It wasn't being rich. I just wanted to be financially independent. Mm -hmm. and, and that to me is different levels for different people. Yeah. And I knew that I couldn't do it. I could keep the job. Uh, they were happy with my performance, but, but I wasn't going where they were going. I wasn't sure where I was going to go. So I took a year off. I actually uh, bought a motorhome and I traveled the United States uh, in 76, 77. But I met a guy, I was reading a Playboy magazine. I remember this about three or four months before I decided to resign. And Dave Lewis took over for me at the Video Dedics in those days. And then they merged the entities back together into one corporation. Uh, Joel Slusky, the guy that hired me, he's still alive today, as, as is Oliver Berliner, as far as I know. I think all of these in his late 80s at this point. So I bought the motorhome and I saw where a guy named Joe Girard who was the best, number one selling car salesman in the world for something like 16 years straight. 
And I said, this is a guy I got to meet because he, he had a series of endless loop eight millimeter cassettes. I think they were calling them in those days. Yeah. So he had a series of like seven or eight programs where he was mono we mono one-on-one with that. And I suggested, I said, why don't you put that on videotape or video cassettes? So you met so, him. So you ended up going to yeah. meet him and you said, hey, why don't you put this on video? Yeah, I didn't actually get to meet him, but talked to him on the phone. Okay. Congratulate him. And I said, told him what I was going to do. So he gave me an opportunity. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 10% of every sales training kit you sell for me as you travel the United States. You're on your own. And you just go call on the car dealerships. Well, I had one advantage. I already knew that Ford had them yeah. before those cassettes. I already knew that Dotson had them. And I also knew that GM had just moved over from film cartridges to cassettes. So every time I'd hit a town, it didn't have to be a huge town. I knew the odds were great. I had at least one out of three potential sales at the car dealership. And that's how I financed my trip. And, and hit those those were educational, like to help the salespeople internally understand oh, yeah. the sales process. Yeah. So you were giving them sales training. You're selling them sales training. Yeah. I was, but you have to appreciate when you have to see Joe Girard. When you get a chat, go online and just Google Joe Girard. Okay, I'll do that. He, I'm writing that down. He is he is not the he's not the most loved car salesman in the world by sales manager because his te- techniques were much like what you would expect them to be. Yeah. But I will tell you, I, I learned a valuable lesson. If I showed the demo tape to a sales manager, more than likely I wasn't going to get to sell because the sales manager kind of felt like they could compete with yeah. the guy on the videotape. So I learned to go sell it to the general manager first. And as I said, I financed my whole trip. The tape sold for about $700 or $800 a set, if I remember right. I got done and I spent Oh, I was born and raised here in Southern California, and I decided uh, I did want to stay in the industry, but I didn't want to just start over here. Yeah. So I moved up to Northern California, Santa Clara in 1977, and I went to work for a company called Alco Paramount, and that was owned by a guy named Al Liberatus. He owned like 12 or 13 retail stores but he had a pro audio video division and he had a Sony franchise. And I met the chairman of the board and they gave me a job. They said, help us get our video division running. I said, I can do that. And so I hired and trained their sales force for them. And that's something I also took great pride in. Back in my days at Odetics, is uh, I hired and trained a lot of young kids coming in because I was 24 when I started in the business. And and I found that it was easier to take just energy talent and then put them through a training course and teach them the ups and downs and the ins and outs of the video AV market. And guys like Bruce Ferguson of uh, Pacific Video, he was one of my original salesmen. Phil Kipnis, who's a well-known rep up in the Bay Area, San Francisco area. He opened up, he worked for me when I finally moved from Northern California back to Southern California. But I started at Alco Paramount. And through that, I was doing a government bid for them portable camera recorders where you had the recorder hanging off your shoulder and a handheld camera. Yeah. 
And yeah. the recorder was a big giant battery too. And once they yeah. put a battery yeah. in it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they wanted tra transit cases. They yeah. didn't know where to go. But our pro audio division, I noticed there was all these purple and pink and red and blue cases. And I says, where do you get these? And they says, oh, Anvil Cases builds these for us. So I called up Anvil Cases, met a guy named Wayne Thompson who just bought the case company a few months before, made all his original money. He owned all the Pizza Huts, or no, Shakey's Pizzas down in San Diego. Market. And I said, I'd like to come down and talk to you. So I drove down and told him what my thought was. I said, I got a bid, this government bid, it was about 600 cases. Uh, he gave me a price to build the way I did. I actually was a low bid, but I wasn't on the right side of the political football. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> and it disqualified me, disqualified me because my batteries that I were bidding, which were uh, uh, just regular batteries in those days, didn't meet the recharge qualifications. Uh, you know, in today's world, I probably would have argued more, but but I knew I wasn't going to win that one. Yeah. But the important thing was, I got done and I said to Wayne, I said, you know what? I think I can bring this product into my industry, which I called it in those days, because there's a market for it. And in those days, there was thermodyne and there was fiber built. That was about it in the case business. And the thing I thought that was unique about Anvil was, first of all, it was ATA, uh, Airline Transit Authority certified. So he wanted to hire me. And I says, no, I don't want to go to work for him. He says, well, what do you want to do? And he says, I'd like to start my own rep company and, and represent you. And, and he, we made a deal. And for the first year, he gave me a, a fixed amount of money per month. And the 800 lines, when you called Anvil in Rosemead, California, you were actually calling uh, Progressive Marketing Products up in, yeah. uh, in those days, we were in a little town called Scotts Valley, which was yeah. between Santa Cruz and San Jose. And that's how I started Progressive Marketing Products. And from that, I think the next big line that I took on, and we never had too many, I, I kind of had this thing, I, if I had three or four lines, I figured, I was doing all the rest of the lines of disservice in my mind. Yeah. So we had, uh, I started out with that and I also got Barco. Now Barco okay. had two divisions. They had the broadcast division, which was distributed in the United States by Roden Schwartz out of New Jersey. And Roden Schwartz was huge business in broadcast test, EMI, RFI measurements, things like that. And so uh, that was my second product line. In fact, I worked with a guy named Carol Barlow, and you oh, yeah. do know his kids real well. I, I know Kevin and uh, Steve. <laughs> exactly, and I knew him yeah. when they were about this tall. Yeah, and and he uh, was in the so he was in the broadcast side. Yeah, okay. always always had a tie. His tie was a tube. Okay, a reading tube. Yeah, okay, and uh, he wasn't the easiest guy to get along with, but. Uh, and he had very low regard for anything below broadcast. So to take okay. him into a dealer was treading in really <laughs> uh, uh, like thin ice. I actually put him back on a plane one day. I said, you know, I love you like my brother, but I got to get you out of get you out of here. You ain't going to talk to me anymore if I keep you around. So we did quite well together. Uh, 
So you were selling the broadcast line of Barco at the time, not the the in-flight, because the in-flight stuff was, that's where it became kind of gray area, right? Yeah, well, Anvil was uh, all music. I brought them into the television business overall. That gave me an audience in broadcast, because in those early days, a lot of television AV dealers would say they were doing broadcast, but they really weren't. There was just a handful that were. Up in Northern California, it would have been, well, it was a few years later, but Bob Stater, mm-hmm. he, he, was, he was considered the go-to guy up there, him and his whole company, John Burkhoff. And I found that I established, the thing I did for Anvil was I'd spend one week at the factory and then one week out in the field. And I learned the business inside out. I designed their, their price list, their catalogs, uh, the whole nomenclature system. And then I met a guy from Sony Japan. His name was Fumio Ishida. And, and twice in my life, Sony came in to really give me a boost. And the first time was, well, maybe three times now I think of it, was when uh, they helped me get the job at Odetix. Of course, they have to deny it now because yeah, it's, you're it's to, <laughs> well, no, it's hard to believe that Sony actually, Sony and I both got sued when I got hired by Sony by my previous employer. Uh, it, it, it didn't go anywhere. It made okay. me feel good. At least I felt, well, it must've been worth something to you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Bumi Yoshida was then, as memory serves it, the overall product manager for Sony Worldwide. And somehow he heard about what Anvil was doing, what, what Anvil cases were doing to preserve the workability of Sony products, especially broadcast, because the broadcast cameras in those days, as you know, are, are very expensive. Yeah. And typically you transport the lens in a separate case from the, yeah. the body of the camera. So I got a call from him and he wanted to tour the factory. And, and of course, said, absolutely. So he was a big guy uh, for a Japanese person. I mean, he was probably six two. And, pretty beefy. Uh, he came down and saw the operation, saw how we could ship on average 150 to 300 cases a day, all one of a kinds. And all we needed to know was what color did you want in the design? Yeah. And, and he saw the benefit to Sony. And I swear to God, this is true. He, uh, he uh, was one of the first times that I know on record where Sony actually sent out a letter to all their dealers across the United States recommending that they consider, he didn't say you must, just consider buying these Anvil cases to protect your cameras, recorders, and monitors. And that's what started the whole thing. Yeah, that must have been a flood of orders at that point in time once when Sony's endorsing it, basically. Yeah, it was uh, the one and only time they did it. Uh, that I know of, to my memory, because I think it was Bob Mueller who told me, uh, who's now since retired, that there, he was shocked when they did it as well. But, but I, you know, I take it for the benefit that it was. We were actually doing that for them. It also made, gave me inroads to a lot of other manufacturers who later became my OEM customers in my mouth business, 
because I would be building directly for them. I built all of Ampex's broadcast camera cases for Ampex for almost two years. So it's just, to me, I'm always in a belief that what goes around comes around. You, you wanna just keep planting seeds every day that you're out there. So let me ask you about, uh, so you're, you have progressive marketing at the time, but you're still spending a lot of time with Anvil even though you don't work with Anvil, but the benefit to you was you were helping create products that you felt like you could sell better. Yeah, the biggest benefit I gave Anvil was uh, I, I am created, I'm not gonna call myself an inventor, I'll just say I created it. Uh, the, the first true shock mount rack case. Now the, er, the earlier case racks were a completed rack case that were set in another case yeah. That, that had a top and a bottom or clamshell yeah. sides. I said, well, wait a minute. What if I, and, and I'll tell you where I got the idea from. Chiron was just starting to sell their first character generators mm -hmm. that were being used largely in uh, remote sports television mm -hmm. on, on, in uh, uh, the arenas or on the field. And they were having a heavy breakage problem, especially with the motherboards. I can't remember the guy's name, but I know it was in New White Plains, New York, or White Plains, New York, contacted me and he says, I need a case that that, 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 that. So I got looking at the cases and I said, well, why don't I just take a rack case and put foam on the outside of it. And I used ether, the softer foam on the top and size of the stronger ester foam or vice versa on the bottom. And then I slide it inside another case and put front and back clamp on lids. And that's how the shock mount rack case. Yeah, and that saves a lot of money rather than putting a case inside of a case. Yeah. And well, and the efficiencies of setup and strike and everything that came along with it. So I, I, I've always liked the thought, I've always given something back. If I, if I Anvil helped me get started and I, I helped grow Anvil's case business substantially. Yeah, and so you, when I met you, you were progressive marketing and you were doing even, I think you had Brentford carts at the time. Is that right, if, if I remember correctly? Or you, you yeah, drove? well, the evolution was that uh, I was progressive marketing products. I was Winstead's first rep that, okay. they, that, that they used. Then they hired a guy by the name of Skip John. And then they put reps all over the country, which I still think they have today. A good friend of mine, Jerry Hoska, unfortunately, he passed a couple of years ago, and he was he was the owner, or he's the part owner, but but he became the eventual sole owner, and uh, and we we worked well together. We were we were a good match, and I think we bought brought not only increased sales to Winstead, but it also benefited us as well because our exposure kept growing. So out of that, I really wanted to go to the next level and become a stocking. I didn't want to just get the rep commission. I said, why can't I buy and take title to it yeah. and offer this as a service? So I can still remember I was doing a show and, uh, and by this time, Bradford knew me. It was, it was Dave Petrick uh, yeah. and his brother, Ed. Yeah. And their father, uh, Russ Petrick was still alive, but retired and I had, in those days, you always sold Bradford carts. Mm -hmm. There were Luxor came later into my life, as well as Wilson. But a uh, true story, uh, there was, I don't know if you remember the earlier days, there was a little German restaurant across from the Las Vegas Convention Center. Oh, yeah, I do remember. 
Yes. Okay. I don't know. I don't know if the landmark was still there. If it meant imploded, I think it was still there. In those it days. was still there. Yeah. This yeah. is before that. Yeah. So that was a very everyone that did a show there went to that restaurant or the Italian one behind it. Yeah, Pieros was right yeah, across Pieros. the street. Yeah, yeah. So Dave Patrick and I were sitting in that German restaurant drinking way too much beer together. <laughs> and his sales manager were there because that was Dave Patrick's protective guy. Because Dave would commit to something and then Bob would have to remind <laughs> him of it. And I was telling him what my thought was, and he says, Well. He says, why don't you buy my carts and uh, I'll give you a good deal and you bring them out to the West Coast. And I says, sounds good to me. And it started out, what he actually had was an office uh, distributor that had gone BK on it. And he had a bunch of crap sitting up in, in the Bay Area and he didn't have anywhere else to send it. So I got that for the starts, but it's what got us started doing it. And it was through that, that I started learning about more about television mounts. And in those days, they were all CRT type mounts. Yeah. Uh, the dominant player was uh, Peerless. Uh, there was also another company that not too many people remember, and that was Lou Casey. Oh, yeah. I remember Which, them now. I, whatever happened to them, actually? Are they still around? I, I You know, their, their parent company was uh, JS Green or JR Green was the original company. And... I honestly don't think they're around anymore, mm -hmm. but there were, there were plenty of other startup type companies. Yeah. And what happened then was Bradford, uh, once I started wholesaling their carts, and, and I, my, they, the dealers out here would buy these products from me because of a convenience factor. Plus there was always a lot of damage in shipment in those days yeah. because those are welded carts, they're all steel. And they couldn't put a lot of money into the packaging. So sometimes you get the cart, you take it out. And before you put the casters on, you know, it would start to wobble. So Redford showed me the secret of how to straighten them up by banging them on the floor the right way. But the biggest benefit was that we had stock. You could order from me on Monday and I would probably deliver it to you on Tuesday because I'd, I'd run my own deliveries in those days. I had an old uh, Ford Econoline van, I remember. and, and we became best known for that. So I knew that I was more identified with support gear than the main gear. I was known for cases, consoles, mounts. And I actually started doing mounts for Bradford. I helped them design their first mounts. But through that, I had a relationship starting with Luxor Corporation. And what Luxor brought to the business was uh, plastic. And and I was quite smitten with that. I said, this makes all the sense in the world to me. So I started bringing their products in. First, I'd take them as finished gears. Finally, I started buying them in bulk mm -hmm. and putting my own together. So I built order. So we just, we had all, we bought all the supplies from Luxor, but we gave, gave bulk and assembly pick and pack the same day. Uh, and we grew the business even more. So we were, that got us going. And by that time, I know that Dale Glumstrud of Chief, his main business was his film and or his slide projector yeah. uh, systems, stacking systems. Yeah. And I was doing a show. Oh, I, I remember uh, 
Sony, the early days of video projection, most people probably don't remember that uh, Sony didn't start out with the three, three gun six inch CRT projector. Most of us, most of the people started out with what they ended up with, which were single lens projectors. Right. But in those early days, in Sony's case, the first one was a Trinitron 12 inch that had a, like a 50 millimeter field lens with a big snout on it that stuck out in front. I think the uh, lumen output was something like 200 lumens. So obviously it had to be a really dark room to work. Yeah, yeah. But the die was cast. <laughs> and uh, I started looking at how do you support these things. But what really kicked it off for me, then I don't know, do you remember when Sony, now when, when did you start at Extron? Uh, 1987. Okay, so this was way before you. I remember the publication, Video Trade News. I do remember it, but but I don't know if it was still being published at that time. It may have been. Not in 87. This is actually uh, April of 77. Okay. And the guy that published it, his name is Charlie Tepler. And uh, he had a, a, a lady working for him who was <coughs> just a great salesperson. I can't, Eileen was his, her first name. Well, they started, I'll just digress for a minute, then I'll bring mm -hmm. it back. They started the, the first multiple trade shows called Video Expos in those okay, days. That's, that's how I remember them. Yes. Okay. okay yep. I remember Video Expo. Yep. And we started, we had one in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. and, and then, unfortunately, typical, a lot of trade show companies, you know, it had some really glorious years, but then there was one in Texas and then one in Chicago. Yeah. And then now we were doing one up in San Francisco. And, and that was the prequel, quite frankly, to NAVA and then Infocom. Yeah. Yeah. The, and the expos just kind of burned themselves out because they had too many of them too close together and it went soft for a while. But through that, uh, Sony on their one of their first projectors. Do you remember the Video Magic system? No, I don't. What is the Video Magic system? Well, that was the next evolution away from the the old Trinitron with the field lens on it. It was an actual projector, and it, it was a single lens. And the problem was by this time. Uh, when I was working at Alco Paramount, I got introduced to the consumer side of business because that's when VHS and Betamax and home, yeah. home cassettes really started to explode on the marketplace. So I got to sit in the marketing department of both sides and listen to the advertising and the gifts. And I was shocked to see how much more money was given on the consumer side for promotions than was on the pro side. Of course. <laughs> but through, through that evolution of education, I started my progressive marketing company, came to Southern, moved it back to Southern California in 1980 because I got offered a deal from, uh, uh, oh gosh, it was uh, Alan Davis and he is with, uh, but, who, but Alan wanted you to move back to Southern California to handle well, the he, I met him, he actually took over for Carol Barlow when Carol Barlow retired. Okay, okay. And he moved on to another company. Uh, they're big in the business still today. God, it's, it's, they were like an Ikigami. They were, uh, excuse me? Christie? No. no, they made broadcast monitors. 
Okay. Uh, okay. But anyway, Alan hired me, or he hired Progressive Marketing, but he said, the, the deal is I'll give you all of California, where before with Barco, I didn't have Southern California, but you got to move to Southern California because that's where the major markets were, New York and, and LA. And so we did, and we located it back down to uh, Anaheim, California. But in this process, Sony created this thing called the Vita Magic, which I call the Vegematic, affectionately. <laughs> the problem was they put a Betamax on it. So it was a projector with a built-in Betamax player. Okay. And, and Betamax players weren't selling. Right. VHS killed them. Yeah. 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 So I, people shall remain nameless till God calls me home. But let's just say I was given an opportunity to go out and mold a piece of equipment. Yeah. And uh, I made an adapter that went in place of where the Betamax was, and it hid a VHS <coughs> JVC <laughs> projector. That's funny. <laughs> so you put a VHS. Well, so back then, this is this is about the mid '80s. Then is that when this is about? Yeah, mid -80s? yeah. yeah. So, so back then, there. back then, the porn industry bought a lot of projectors. Were you selling into that as well? Because in California, that was becoming popular back then. Uh, that's just I had I had a short exposure to the adult <laughs> entertainment industry. Uh, I met the guy. Uh, who had an adult theater on Golden Gate Avenue. Mm -hmm. And he owned a large volume of uh, adult uh, 60 millimeter films, had some eight millimeters. And a dealer up there had sold him a film change system, we call it in those days, or a mm -hmm. telephone system. And it was really a piece of junk that he got and he could never get it to work. And so he, he came through the door, I looked at what he had and he uh, said, well, can you make it work? I said, oh yeah. I said, but we'll, we'll have to start all over. So I went and bought a layered film chain system. I think it was a 5,300 in those days. And so we got him up and operating and uh, I was actually there in CES in those early days. I never worked full time for him. I was, yeah. I had a piece of the action, but I said, I, I don't want to be known with you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that, that was a big, it was a big builder of our industry, obviously, because oh. they, in fact, that's what killed, you know, in reading the history, that's what killed Sony and Betamax was that the porn industry adopted the VHS and the rest absolutely. is history. Absolutely. Yeah. And, that, that and, is absolutely a true story. And uh, he was eventually bought out by BCA duplicating up in uh, yeah. Los Angeles in the Valley. And he went on, he went on and retired. He, uh, but the funny thing was in those days, he was consuming literally hundreds, hundreds later, thousands of reels or cassettes, but he couldn't buy them directly because Sony or K-Rex, didn't matter who you were, they weren't going to sell them. So there was all these out of trunk sales going on yeah. in, in parking lots, let's put it that way. That's how they got it. And the first time they showed up at CES as the adult, well, there was like three 10-foot curtains back in the corner this is a true story back in the corner and that's where they were and of course behind the know, curtain behind the curtain yeah 
And, well, then, and then they grew to where they were so big, they, they, they took over the sands. Yeah, I mean- Which they still do today. Yeah, still a huge show. Um, so, so then when did you start Premiere? When did Premiere, because that was about the late 80s, early 90s, is that right, if, if memory serves me? Yeah, Sony by this time had introduced their uh, VPH 500 series, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, Three-gun projector. Extron, mm -hmm. uh, quite frankly, if I remember right, was the go-to person for the interface electronics. Yeah. Right? And, and I also remember, I remember selling Andrew Edwards his uh, stock pulling carts when he had the first building over in Santa Fe Springs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very small. We had a, we had a ton of progressive carts in that building. Yeah. And so anyway, I had, I was blessed to be befriended by a number of people with Sony over the years just because of projects I brought to, to them. And that, 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 uh, the Navy ship, that was the first warship that ever been done. Then I befriended a guy going back in time. His name was Hal Johnson. And Hal Johnson was the, the rising star within Sony that got him into the government uh, contracts business, GSA as it later became known. It was GSA to begin with. And Hal Johnson and I became really good friends over the years. And he just knew if he, if he opened his little black book and he had, and it literally was a little black book, and he says, Here, write, write this down. You should talk to these people and show them something. I would do it religiously for him because I'd go to the gaff and that, that, was, that was my stock and trade. Uh, you know, I go to the dance with you and I go home with you. So anyway, I was sitting in the booth and you have to understand, this was when guys like Phil Stack, Dave McReynolds, uh, there's a half of Bob Mueller, were all, and, and most of these guys had now had started at some point, came to Sony, and then moved on. They were now working for JVC or they were working for Panasonic or whoever. But they they were comrades in arms. Yeah. That, that was the neutral zone. And I still remember a, a good friend of mine who's now retired. He was a vice president of Sony on the West Coast. And, and they were talking about the pluses and minuses of Sony projectors because they were selling like hotcakes. And Sony made you know the mouthful. They were flying the projectors in, but they were shipping, they didn't even have container shipments in those days. They were shipping by ship the steel products like the carts in that. Yeah, because they weighed so much. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So this VP mentioned it loud enough that I heard it. He says, you know, somebody should be getting these mounts done here. And a little light went off. And I mm -hmm. says, so I created, in fact, I still have a sample of the original one in, in our showroom. Uh, we made our PSS, or no, Sony's was a PSS 722 and a PSS 10. 722 was the basic projector mount, ceiling mount. And then the PSS-10 was the two-inch OD pipe suspension adapter for drop ceilings. So I took that and I made a version of it, took it to a load of low, local fabricator and said, can you build these for me? And he says, yeah. I said, okay. And that's how I got started building the first mount for Sony. And uh, 
that's when I learned that uh, this, this was where we got. Didn't know right off the bat because I was still doing a lot of work in consoles. But uh, after a couple of years, it was obvious to me that in my warehouse, 85% of my space was taken up by console furniture because I had my own product line in uh, Delta Designs. And over in the corner was this little mount business and the mount business outselling the console business for me 10 to one. So yeah, but uh, it was taking up only 20% of the space. So there's a margin that logical margin there. <laughs> That's yeah, the direction you, make, you should go. You, uh, you, you, you just realize what's going on. So I, I uh, hired in about 11 roll off big containers and I dumped all the inventory and scrapped it to give me warehouse space. And that was the start of our mount business. It was, it was still PMN, progressive marketing mounts in those days. But again, we, we, we realized it was having it when the dealers needed it and knowing ahead of time when the manufacturers were gonna come out with a new product, as, as you well know, it was just, it was like cars. They just evolved Constantly. every year. Yep. And that's where my uh, relationship with Exxon really took off because yep. you guys had the power because unless you made the conversion system, yeah, it wasn't going to market. And I still remember you guys were, were very good to me. You, you'd let me borrow it on the weekend. So I'd yep, pick it we up. Would. <laughs> we didn't tell anyone that, but we did. We would, <laughs> we would loan it to you on the weekends and, uh, and you would make a mount for it. And in, in return, we would always, whenever we needed mounts, you would get us mounts for products whenever we'd mount them. And uh, yeah, it was a great relationship. So that really was when we started to grow. Uh, that led to a, a call from Sony Japan. Uh, there was a guy who I got to know real well while he was working. He headed up the Sony projector group in America. Uh, God. So well, I can't remember his name now. Uh, anyway. You know, within those kind of... Is he a Japanese guy or American guy? Japanese guy. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, Fukuzawa? Was it... Because uh, 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 there was a guy... Because the guy who Luke Rawls worked for at the time is probably who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah Tamiya. Yeah. Tamiya. Uh, Kenji Tamiya. Yeah, okay, you're right. Yep, okay, yeah. So when he got back to Japan... I remember now. We were, we were going gangbusters. We were not only building for Sony, then we brought on Barco mounts, or put mounts for Barco in Electra home, and just one after another as they started to come into the marketplace. And of course, none of them were the same. The only ones that were the same is if they, Sanya in those days was cross-licensing to all kinds of people, yeah. uh, where Sony wasn't, um, Barco wasn't. Uh, Panasonic, uh, in the early days, uh, they all had they all had their form of it, but and we were we we went to a lot of trouble. We always made sure we had it mount ready before the projectors were even shipping. We made sure the picture of the product matched the product being sold. So dealers, you know, usually would say, "What mount do I need for?" Not, "Will you sell it to me?" Right. So I said, "I'm gonna make it as easy as I can." For and uh, I even remember one time when. Sony, Sony had these price lists that they put out for their dealers and they had different colors. They had red ones and blue ones and green ones. They were basically all the same price, but, but they were for educational market. But the key was the projectors 
were simply that the amount was two lines on a price list. One for the melt, it was the P PSS 722, and one for the PSS 10. So I got the bright idea. I said, well, wait a minute, why don't I print, and I'll do it on a white background, my mom, PMM 722 and PMM 10 with a peel off back. So when I'd call on my dealers, with their knowledge, I, I would go into the Sony binder and I'd put that down there. So then they'd order it from you. That's that's brilliant. And at some yeah. point in time, at some yeah, point in time, yeah, that's smart. At some point in time, you were making the mounts for a lot of the manufacturers. At a lot, some point in time, they came to you and they wanted you to OEM them just to put them in the package themselves. So there was a time where that was a big part of your business, wasn't it? It was uh, easily almost a third to a half of our business. Uh, we yeah. built we built for Sony worldwide for almost four years, uh, and that was. Uh, largely due to them sending an entourage over. Uh, and that was really when it get kicked into high gear. Then I remember when in focus was, oh gosh, they were what, 25, 30, 25 to 30% of market, which was significant in those yeah, days. They were huge. They were the big player for small projectors. Right. And, but they had a problem because they, they, they wanted to control everything so much. So they controlled all the accessories. And they found that that was starving them in the marketplace because they were just overextended. Yeah. So they, they sent a young group out. And I remember the, the lady in charge, her first name was Brandy. And she toured my operation. She toured, I think it was Peerless. And more than likely it was, oh no, it was me, Chief, and Bradford. That's what it was. Okay. And I didn't think I had a chance in hell at that, but I, I did get it. They came back. And they said, You're, we're going to give you the contract to build all our mounts for us. And I said, well, I appreciate that. Uh, what, what made your decision? She said, well, you're the only one that seems to look beyond just the product itself. You look at the packaging and how do you put pieces together. And that relationship lasted for a long time. Uh, and that cemented it. Then we built for Mitsubishi. Uh, and I would make regular trips to Japan and visit the manufacturers that I was working with in the United States. And in the case of Mitsubishi, they wanted triple safety standard, they called it in those days. You know, if you see two bolts going through, that's a double standard, they wanted three. And the product manager, uh, his name was Ikita, uh, boy, the last name is forgetting me, but he was down in Kobe, Japan. Mm. And Sony was just, north or so of uh, in the Shinagawa district of, uh, outside of Tokyo. So he would come up on the train when I was doing a show. Because we remember we used to do the Sony big site show in those days. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we built for years for Mitsubishi. John Malconian was the guy's name. He was my contact at Mitsubishi. Mm -hmm. And he says, Lenson, we're happy for you to build our products in the United States for our distribution but we can't buy them for Japan because they don't meet our safety standards. They're, they're fine for America, da, da, da. I said, I'm, I'm good with that. And we later went on to build the OEM mounts for people that probably didn't even know we were building them. We built for 3M for years. So it, it was a big part of our business. What was, the, what was the toughest project you ever had to tackle? Like 
you you it, you thought it was going to be just just like any other project, then all of a sudden took up an enormous amount of time. Do you, do you have a memory like that, or a situation where you just were overwhelmed with 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 some new product that was coming out or new technology? Yeah, I'm trying to remember, but oh, I know what it was. Well, there's there was two that I knew of. One involved. Uh, uh, I, I know you were around in those days. Uh, we were doing Infocom in uh, Dallas. 1992. Somewhere around there. Yeah. And Burlington Northern had just contracted a dealer mm -hmm. to do a huge installation in their home base somewhere right outside of Dallas, if I remember right. And it was... Hughes JVC three and projectors, or not three of uh, three the the uh, that light monster mount, three LV three yeah, light mount yeah yeah monster projector yeah like the size of a refrigerator right yeah a big refrigerator and yeah. eight hundred lumens yeah John Stewart <laughs> Don Stewart was doing the, the screens yeah or Stewart was doing the screens and. I forgot how I got, I got contracted to design the stand mm -hmm. to put the Hughes projector on because they had to sit in a fixed trough elevated from the floor, projecting through a very small opening. And the problem was, was that the dealer who shall remain nameless, unfortunately, just did a horrible job of, of all the interface. So exhaust ports for the projectors that were supposed to be on the left or on the right. It was just, just mayhem. And it was unfortunate because it was a real black eye for the industry. So I can still remember Donnie Stewart, myself. I think you may have been involved in that too in those days. Yeah, I know the project and I know the dealer. <laughs> and, and we all got together and we said, we can't let this happen. So we went on site free of charge and uh, uh, helped them get it fixed. But the black eye had already been done. Uh, they wouldn't allow Infocom to make a tour of the facility, even though it was corrected by those days, because they were so dissatisfied. And those were important lessons, I think, for the industry to remember that, you know, you gotta know what you're doing before you jump in there. Especially with a technology like that, that was a one-off technology that was very, um... What's the right word? Uh, finicky. It was. It was a very finicky technology. It was not. It was it not was a reliable. Technology. It was in its infancy. I mean, everything was yeah. being stretched to the limit of what yeah, you had to cool it. it. You had to cool it like crazy to keep. Yeah, it I running. mean, I don't know if you remember the original projectors in the early days. I mean, the big ones like the Ida Force. Did you ever? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you know, you know how those were. Uh, mm -hmm. Those you always had a backup unit there. Yeah. And people used to ask me, and they said, well, why do you have a backup unit? I says, well, because you can't replace the audience. Yeah. You know, if you're doing a concert in, or Muhammad Ali is doing a fight, he's not going to stop and start to fight over again. That's right. And that's why you always had backups. Yeah. So do you remember when the uh, Charlotte Arena opened up and the light valves fell out of the uh, ceiling uh, because they had run the cable up and they, they, they couldn't stop the crank from running and then they... It was a big picture on the front of uh, Sound and Communications magazine of the things all over the floor. Do you remember that? Yeah. I vaguely remember it. I also remember one day where 
somebody had a booth and they were right behind the Tektronics booth. And, and it's probably NAB being Tektronics. And Tektronics had their stuff stacked all over this thing. And all of a sudden I, I'd see this wall behind them starting to cave over. And it, it topples over on top of the Tektronics booth and dumps the whole thing on the floor. Does it. anybody hurt? No, no. It, uh, good, uh, gosh, lucky. It was, it, this was probably during setup, if I remember oh, that. Okay, good. Yeah. So what was your, um, what are you, like, I want to ask you a, a couple of personal questions before we wrap it up, but I want to ask you, what are you professionally most proud of? What's your most proud professional accomplishment? Uh, I think the relationship I had with uh, the manufacturers, the other manufacturers in the industry, even the competitors, uh, I mean, I was always very cordial and, and, and with the, the guys at Chief. You know, I, I would tell them, you, know, you don't have to sneak in my booth at midnight. You can come in there to hell, welcome you there. But all I ask is if I come into your booth, don't get scared. I'm just looking. <laughs> I don't want you to see it. I won't put it out there for you to see. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's actually, that makes a lot of sense for you to deliver. I mean, your lesson here is really good. And that is, you said earlier to have, you know, you value the relationships. The relationships are always came back to pay you back one day. Uh, oh, yeah. What, and yeah. They, they still do to this day. I, you know, Gary Mandel, for example, at Sony, mm -hmm. Sony got into broadcast. Uh, they had to fight to get in there, if you remember right. Yeah. The thing that got them started was a crazy little Trinitron television. Mm -hmm. It was so reliable. Now, it wasn't as good as the Conracs and the Barcos, but it was never intended to be. It, with the vertical stripe filter technology that, that they invented and an unbelievable reliability, if you remember. Right. It lasts forever, yeah. Did you, I don't know, did you ever tour the facility down there in Rancho it's, Bernardo? It's San Diego or Rancho? Yeah, Where, yeah, yeah, San Diego. yeah, yes, I did. And yeah. uh, I still remember, they built that thing to show it. Yeah. And there was these little rubber mallets all through the assembly process. This is a true story. And certain half a dozen, dozen people were scheduled at any point in the construction of the chassis to beat on with this. And if it glitched at all, little hand come down, mechanical hand, picked it up, took it all the way back at the front, totally stripped it and built it all over again. And that's how they got that unbelievable reliability where they would get just unbelievable years of continuous use. Yeah, I mean, they, Sony, uh, you know, there, there are a few examples of brands that really helped our industry a lot. And Sony, I mean, Barco, you could point to also building the first uh, projectors that went on airplanes. Uh, that yeah. was a big deal. And then building, you know, very high end projectors. And then Sony with sort of consumerizing the professional market, right? The, the fact that you, you know, that you didn't have to sell them one off, that you could sell a bunch at a time. Uh, that was a good example of that. I know you're, you also have some passions. I know motorcycling is, or cycling, I guess. Oh, uh, I, motor, I don't know what you call it, is, is a big passion of yours. Uh, you still do that? And is that something you're going to pursue well, so in retirement? I, no, probably not. No. I have, I think, six custom bikes still, five or six. Uh, I do own a trike. I bought one of those a year or so ago. Uh, uh, the Can-Am? Did you buy the three-cycle the three cycle Can-Am? Is that what you bought? No, no. I bought the uh, Honda conversion trike. Uh, okay. They use uh, uh, California chassis uh, frame. Uh, like the bike. I, I 
I bought it off a couple, unfortunately he passed of cancer. The bike had zero hours on it. So I took my trailer, went over and picked it up and brought it back. And I said, okay, you're gonna become my later in life bike. Uh, Is that what you're riding now? Well, I ride them all a little bit, but not too much anymore. Fly fishing is probably more prevalent in my life. I got doing that about 10 years ago. Just for the record, you know, it's, it's kind of humorous. I actually had the company sold twice before. I just didn't publicize it. The, the, the big time would have been back in 2008. And I don't need to remind you what happened in 2008. <laughs> but I had a letter of intent for 70% of the company, a lot of money. And... Uh, like other things in life, you just, I have a big faith in God and, and it just wasn't meant to be. I thought it was close. I had the letter of intent and I said, oh my gosh. And that company, uh, then the market, as you know, the banking market tanked. Mm. So we just licked our wounds and made some adjustments. We got out of the retail business. That was costly, but I'm still glad to this day that I did because it. my problem was, I wasn't big enough and I wasn't the structure that Chief had become where they had Santa's for the consumer right. side and they kept Chief. And that was a good move on their part. And I finally said, you know what? I'm, I'm not having the fun that I used to have. Yeah. And that's when I downsized the company and went back to my pro business. And at the timing was right because once LEDs and LCDs started coming out, then our, our, you know, our true ability to be somewhat... Uh, to pr promote ingenuity into the yeah. product. And that's what we did. And we've had a pretty good run in the LED business. We've done a lot of work for people like Samsung. We were there in the early days, more so than now with Planar. But then that led me to create what I call the Convergence Series, which is still our top yeah. of the line selling now. And again, it was before it was just taking too long to get it into your hands, to get it installed. So we even ran our own installation for a couple of years, but then we were able to put those guys in business. So I'm yeah. proud of that too. And, and, and you're smart enough to get www.mounts.com. I mean, that's a, that was a great coup. That's a great URL uh, back in the early days of the web. Um, so, so fly fishing, where do you go? Where's your favorite place to go? Right now, it's usually Montana. I, I fish mm -hmm. the Missouri River a lot. Uh, it's it's really good blue water fishing. And I could probably fish for the rest of my days on the earth and still not hit every good lake or stream or river in, in Montana alone. But all the related states that feed into it, Idaho, Utah, mm -hmm. all great spots. Uh, I have offers. I'll probably do some international fishing now. Uh, New Zealand is quite famous for their fly fishing, as well as... Uh, Chile. Where's your favorite place you've ever traveled? Like, what's the one spot you think is the uh, most amazing? That's, I probably, I love, I love my trips to Japan mm -hmm. because I'd go over there for a week or two at a time. And, you know, I'm from that era where I was told pack cigarettes, booze, and candy and, and give the gifts. After a few years, the people at Sony said, Linson, you don't need to do this. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I never got it right. I was giving booze to guys that didn't drink and cigarettes to people that didn't smoke. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I'm doing a lot. I was, we've done a lot of cruising all over the world, my wife and I. So it hasn't all been work. It's been, it's been a really good run. I did 
achieve my financial independence, and that was my target. I did that many, many years ago, but uh, I just, I love being involved in this industry because to me, it's a rarity. I mean, I was there when it was black and white, open reel, one hour machines, and look where it is now. Yeah, what, over your lifetime, what do you think is the most incredible uh, invention? Like of the, all the things, what's the thing that wows you the most? Oh, without a doubt, the clevis mount. My first okay. uh, universal uh, flat panel mount, it was for plasma TVs. And again, I can't claim credit. I was actually hanging a couple of mirrors in uh, home, my new home in Yorba Linda back then in 96 that uh, my wife wanted me to mount. And I mounted them and I noticed, I pulled them out, I noticed they, they tilted. Mm-hmm. And I was taken by the friction mechanism. And I asked my wife, I says, why do you want these things to tilt? She says, well, don't you know, dummy, makeup lighting changes for a while. So, but I, I got caught up in this thing because in those early days, if you remember, virtually all of us were making two-piece mounts. We had this big right. adapter plate that mounted on the TV plasma, yeah. the wall mount, and you hooked the two together, and that, that's all you could do with it. And if somebody moved the spots, well, I got the bright idea, and, and, and my chief designer, Mike Boussier, gets a lot of credit. I can come up with the ideas, but he's the mechanical engineering design brain behind it. And we came up with the left and right bracket instead, and then we got the bright ideas that you know, you had people like NEC was using M4 screws. Sony was using probably M5s, I think, in the early days. But they were all over the map. But by having the two separate brackets, and then I put multiple holes. Later, yeah. you can slots and holes yeah. with that three, three or four hole sized uh, flat washer. And that really launched us full force. Our projector business was doing well, but this launched us into the the flat panel business. Yeah, and And that's that's a famous product. I mean, you've, I think a lot of brands have copied you on that. Oh, You could argue argue a lot of mounts came from that mount. (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah, we, 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 yeah, I'll just leave it at that. It well, we did well by it. Well, then I've always enjoyed interviewing you over the years. I've enjoyed working with you directly and indirectly over the years. And, um, you know, we were right down the street from each other for many years, working almost side by side. And you're right, we did work together. And, and part of that trade was in, in addition to sending you uh, projectors on the weekend uh, for you to build the mounts for them, you would also... Um, um, you would also uh, do the same for us when there was new products that were out there that were coming. We would know that those were coming because we we had to make sure the compatibility of everything. And I remember uh, one story where um, there was at one point in time where um, I had the idea to get into the mount business when I was at Extron because we were trying to expand our product line. And I remember Andrew saying, nope, Lynn does that. That's his expertise. So I know that he has a fondness for you as well. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I this was back in the early 90s. We were just I trying also to remember you know, when you and I, well, it was you that started it when you started the first instruction classes for was it Seagate? Was it Seagate back then? 
Well, let's see, we did, we did education at CDN at Infocom, but it was Comtex as well, it, it, you know, which was. Well, it, you it, started it up. You got to me from else. Mm -hmm. you, you went to probably Stuart or no, there was one guy that you had that did rear projection screens. The yeah. other guy was doing optics. Another guy was doing audio. Yeah. And I still remember if, if and I remember it affectionately, you, you said, look, we don't have any money. We can't pay <laughs> But we really want you to come here and, and teach. And, yeah. uh, I, I, I think I kidded you a little, but I, I, I love those original days of doing those instructions. Yeah, we put together the first sort of industry training. And we knew that if we could get multiple manufacturers to come together, it'd be more likely to get people to attend. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. And it was like the first time that I think brands had gotten together, not at a trade show, right? It was It was sort of like a independent yeah. thing. Yeah, and, if I remember right, it was a three-day event. I think we did it yeah. twice a year in the early days, right? Yeah, at least twice a year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a great little tour we did. We, we changed we changed manufacturers every once in a while. I think we had we did have Stuart at some point in time. I think eventually went to day, Daylight because they just, Stuart was so customized and then Daylight had, you know, kind of everything screened yeah. at that time. So well, I think we also did on melts. And, and that, that, yeah. that, that, that was all for that because I said, look, it doesn't help the industry if not everybody contributes. Yeah, no, it's true. But you've been a great uh, advocate for the industry. I know the industry is gonna going to miss you, but your your legacy will live on through uh, Gamber Johnson and through the the fact that you invented the mount category in many different ways. <laughs> uh, no one can argue with that. So thanks for all you did in the industry. My pleasure and enjoy the ride. Yeah, you did a great job. So we've been talking to Lynn Dozier, the founder of Premier Mounts, uh, before that Progressive, and, and the great stories that went along with his career in the industry, which, uh, let's see, how many years is that? What, what's the total number of years again? Uh, 54. 54 years in the industry. So uh, this has been a great kind of look at it, you know, a half a century of the industry, starting out with black and white, now where we are today. Thanks for joining us. And uh, of course, you can see Premier at still at Premier Mounts uh, or mounts.com, or if you could check out Gamber Johnson, gamberjohnson.com, and eventually Premier will be part of that site. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, thanks for joining us. And Lynn, uh, have fun fishing. Enjoy yourself. You deserve it. Many blessings. Thank you. Yeah.